Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is Joshua chapter 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows and let Israel know itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, 
you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, Father, may you, by your grace and your presence, make us a humble people, but also make us an excited people. Father, for your kingdom cannot be stopped and your will cannot be undone. And Father, may we, by your grace, live as your people for your glory and for our good and the good of those around us and the love of our neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me ask this question. Have you ever worked really hard through a season, a tough season, gained so much probably in the realm of maybe insight, blessing, maybe a good and changed perspective, maybe new rhythms in life, only to turn around and lose much of what you gained in the next season. You just went through maybe a, a war with your emotions or a parental war with a child or children, maybe a war in your mind, Maybe a war in your marriage, a war in the workplace. And now you have found some peace or some rest. Now listen, church, the reality is, is even our church as a collective group of people has been at war much over the past year. And now where we're at and where many of us find ourselves even on a daily basis or a new season of life, we, we have to figure out what does it look like to live in peacetime? And the big question that I want to answer or begin to answer 
this week that I, that I think the last portion of Joshua answers for us in general is this question. I would encourage you to write it down. How do we not lose in peacetime what we gained in war? How do we not lose in peacetime what we gained in war? I know as someone who does counseling frequently, that you enter into someone's war. It's usually what happens is war comes in and the situation sits across the, the, my office desk and, and we work through wartime. And then peacetime comes and hope to instill the, the, the new things gained into this person's life. And then really what the prayer then becomes as a counselor is help them continue to keep the things in peacetime that they gained during war. So how do we not get comfortable and let error once again take root in our lives? How do we not lose all the ground that was hard fought for? Fought for through prayer, through the struggle, through hard conversations, pain, loss, times where you could do nothing but depend on the word and beg God for faith to believe. How do you walk in peacetime? Now, I want to expand your thoughts about peacetime and war, and it could be a short peacetime following a long war. Remember, Joshua's wars here lasted roughly seven years, and here we are at the conclusion, and, and we see this, this real, this mark of the end of the war, because now Joshua is sending the two and a half tribes who had agreed to fight all the wars. This really marks, a, has a very clear marking that this is the end of these seven years of wars, when he says, now you two and a half tribes have fulfilled your duty, go back across to your cheap piece of real estate. Or it could be a long peacetime following a short war. Maybe this war lasted through the morning, and now it's the afternoon and peacetime has come. How do you maintain through the afternoon what you gained coming through that war in the morning? How do you walk in peacetime so as not to lose what was gained in war? How to walk in peacetime. I want to give you really my main two points. I'm going to give them to you up here at, at, at the very beginning. That is this. Believe all of God's words. If you want to maintain in peacetime what you gained in war, you must believe all of God's words. All of it. Number two, you must love, worship, obey. Love slash worship slash obey the only true God. Those two things. I believe all that God has said, all that he's revealed about himself and his creation, believe it all, every last drop. We'll talk about that further, and we'll also talk further about loving, worshiping, obeying the only true God. This is not something new, it's not something fancy. There is nothing novel in the Christian faith. If it is, it's probably wrong. Believe all of God's words, love, worship, and obey the only true God, and help others do the same. That's how you maintain in peacetime what you gained in war. See, here's what happens usually in wartime, specifically holy wartime, whether that's, again, the morning time or a season of your life. 
what usually happens is clarity is brought to what God has said. What you believe God to have said during wartime, clarity is brought. Why? Because it's so confusing. And what do I hang on to? Secondly, light is usually shown upon your soul during wartime as to the allegiance of your soul. What is it that you actually cling to? What you're worshiping and obeying is clarified in the middle of war. War draws lines. This happens politically. War, social wars, they draw lines. Where is your allegiance? Where is my allegiance? The reality is, is you're not going to die for a belief that you don't really believe. It's also true that you're not going to die for a belief that you don't know is really true. Believing all that God has said, love, worship, and obey the only true God, your allegiance is to your soul. And so if you come out on God's side like Joshua, you will believe more thoroughly and confidently what God has said. And you will love him and obey him more deeply. I would say those are the spoils of war. Those are the benefits of godly warfare when on God's side you walk away with more thorough and confident, or more thoroughly understanding and more confident in what God has said and more deeply in love and walking in obedience to him. On the flip side, when it's peacetime, rest time, that doesn't mean it's chill and relaxed time. Instead, it's time to enjoy the spoils. In peacetime, what you gain during wartime, it's time to enjoy those spoils. It's time to, to explore the spoils of war. It's time to build further right belief. It's time to guide further right worship. For you men, it's time to build your households, not time to sit back on the couch. For you ladies, it's time to play, make the place look beautiful. And for all of us, it's time to build God's church. Peacetime is not the time for relaxed time. It's the time to enjoy the spoils of war. It's time to make sure we are clear on what God has said further and what he expects and to walk in obedience and worship of him. This is what's happening at the end of Joshua. And it's happening here in Joshua 22. Joshua is saying to the people of God, this is how we're going to keep in peacetime what we gained in war. Number one, know all of God's words and help others do the same. Know all of God's words and help others do the same. We recap the story for you just very briefly here. Joshua has now sent, right? The, the seven years of war is over. The two and a half tribes have fulfilled their commitment here. And he's sending them back to their piece of real estate outside the promised land on the other side of the Jordan. They fulfilled their duty to fight. And 
what he does, he reminds them to follow everything the Lord has said. Well, then they get to the edge of the Jordan and they erect an altar like the one in Shiloh for worshiping the Lord, except this one is bigger. It says it's of imposing size. So they build a bigger one. Well, the other tribes are like, whoa, hang on a second. We're not going there again. (laughs) We just spent seven years fighting for this. We're not going to give up what we've gained so easily. But you can see where for many of us, as time lapses from the wartime, we become more lax. Same thing will happen with Israel beyond the book of Joshua. But for now... The, the truths and the reality of wartime is very fresh on their mind. So fresh on their mind that they are willing to go wage war on the people they just fought battle with for the sake of the glory of God. Right? It is that fresh on their mind. So I'm going to refer to them as the West and the East, the East being the ones on the other side of the river, the two and a half tribes. The East erects this imposing altar. The other tribes are like, nope, we're not going there again. This never goes well at all when any part of us chooses to worship something other than God. But if you read the text, that, uh, what, what Blake read for us earlier, you see that, the, that they're like, look, if you all do this, we're all going to pay the price for this. So if that's the case, we're going to wage war against you. And so they proceed to make war on the people that they just warred with. Joshua 22, verse 16, it says this, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is the breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel and turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against The Lord, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, leading the charge here. Notice where this conversation is. They come together and they begin this conversation at the beginning of what is likely at this moment headed towards war. What you see established very quickly is this idea that we have one Lord who is the Lord. Right? You see that in in verse 16, congregation of the Lord against the God of Israel, turning away from and following the Lord and building yourselves an altar and rebelling against the Lord. What are they saying? What's unique? Because they're erecting an altar to worship something. And they're saying, hang on. The altar that we worship the Lord, the Lord, is over here. He already has an altar. There's no need for another altar. Another altar would represent worshiping someone other than the Lord. There is one Lord. They are quick to fight for one Lord. There's one Lord, one Lord, and that is it. They're like, what in the world are you guys doing? Again, the West realizes, the tribes that remain on the other side of the Jordan, realize what they will lose, and the fact that they will lose what they gained in war if the East rebels against the Lord. The Phineas... And the rest of the elder and the rest of the leaders knew this. This is why they this was a fight worth having. 
And when they saw what appeared to be part of their people stepping across the line, they went hard after them. As a side question here, when you see a brother or sister appear to be stepping across the line, do you go hard after them? Now let's stop for a second. The West, to the two and a half tribes, is not saying there is one higher being and there should be just one physical altar and then nothing else matters. That's not what they're saying. The West is saying there is one Lord and you must follow what that one Lord has said. All of it. Now, I think that's, that's uh, seen in this text by two reasons. One, the implication of Lord. Lord. He is one Lord and he's Lord over everything. The very implication of that title is that he's the boss, that's the word we use in our family, over everything. The West is also saying that the building of the altar is just a representation of their potential rebellion at this point. There's one Lord, and we must follow all that he has said. And I think herein lies one of the greatest temptations during peacetime. I did not coin this phrase. I don't know who created it, but I think one peacetime error that we see is theological minimalism. Theological minimalism. I'm going to explain that. We'll spend a lot of time explaining that. In war, let me contrast this and help build a definition for you. In war, you say, where are the lines? You draw lines to size people up. Are you for us? Are you against us? Where are you at? What are your beliefs? We're standing on, and, and these are the beliefs I'm worth dying for. What are yours? But in peacetime, we tend to say, okay, how can we all just get along? How can we all just be friends? Or what's the minimum? This is where we, our proclivity goes. What's the minimum we can believe in order to make sure everyone feels included? To make sure everyone stays happy? How can we accommodate everyone? And the drive towards holiness that often divides people is lost in exchange for what we think unifies people, which is accommodation of wrong belief. And the accommodation of wrong belief begins to set in because we think that that's what most unifies God's people. They couldn't be furthest from the truth. And those things that we believe are the minimum are the things we begin to make important and the rest we'll just kind of let people have their own way and their own say. In modern vernacular, it's really just the gospel that matters, right? Right? The gospel as it relates to salvation, that's all that matters, right? We don't, we don't really need to hammer in on anything else or, or not too far beyond that. We want people to be included. We want to accommodate everyone. I think it would be a terrible mistake to read this passage as though the building, the building of this imposing altar was the only important point of belief 
and that the West was after. In part because the word Lord is, means Lord over everything, not just Lord of the size and the location of the altar, but Lord of everything. But two, you look earlier, it's a little more explicit in verse 5. As Joshua is sending the two and a half tribes, he gives them this reminder as they go. It's kind of like, here's my last words for you. He says, only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. This is like an all-encompassing statement. Remember everything God has said. Do not depart from it. You want to know what's important to believe? All of it. You want to know what's important to obey? All of it. When they said, we have only one God, they also mean, again, everything God has said and everything that he has exemplified. We sometimes refer to this as God's self-revelation, what he has revealed about himself and his creation. They mean his law explicitly. Everything he has said. Let me give you a metaphor. I was listening to a, a guy named Eric Kahn, and he, he gave this metaphor on this idea. He says, uh, I'm just going to paraphrase, but middle to second half of this last millennium, in England and neighboring spaces, you had these huge estates. Some of you are familiar with the one called Downton Abbey, right? Because uh, that's its fictional name. Uh, if you watch that sh- series, you know, after Matthew dies, it's not worth it, but um, if you haven't watched it and you're planning to, I just spoiled like season three or four or whenever. Sarah and I rewatched it and we stopped when Matthew died. So, uh, anyways, it's called High Clare Castle in Hampshire. You'd have these gorgeous estates, had thousands of surrounding acres where tenants were paid to work the land and the money from the land paid for the estates. It was the income, if you will, that supported these big, huge, beautiful estates. Over the course of time, though, through bad money management and poor decisions, the inheritors of these estates would sell off 100 acres here, 100 acres there, you know, in the name of It's the beautiful home at the center that really matters anyways. Who cares about that little hundred acres there? And it's not that big of a deal. This hundred acres there will sell those off to rescue us from this poor estate we're in. Well, after selling off the land, there eventually became no way to support these beautiful homes at the center. And so many of the homes sold off, left for ruins, etc. What happened? Here's what happened. The surrounding land was actually important to the beauty and the sustaining of the center. But in the name of, it's just the middle, it's just the the core few things in the middle, you know, the gospel that matters. Nothing else is really that important. And when you start selling off that property, what you eventually happens is you lose the center as well. In our day, we live in a Christian culture that says, you know, the only thing that matters is the estate in the middle, particularly the gospel as it relates to salvation. Now, that is crucial. And then maybe a few other things like the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, but you know, that's, that's that's not pushing too far. Let's just let everyone else believe what they, what they want beyond that. And we think this is a good thing. Liking to, liking to push functionally lots of things into the matter of conscience category, as many items as we can shove. 
But here's the problem. If the center of the estate is ruined, if the center of the estate and the grounds is just garbage anyways, then the boundary matters, the boundary land really doesn't matter either. But if the center is good and the boundary issues are not, eventually you will lose the center. Listen, the altar mattered dearly. Its location mattered dearly. But if we lose the rest of what God has said, we will lose the altar too. In peacetime, the tendency is to become laxed on the boundary issues. Let's give everyone some space now. Let's just relax. We tend to live the same way in our own beliefs. Well, you know, as long as I've got the gospel for salvation, I really don't need to work hard on filling out the rest of what I believe and how it applies to life. Right? I just, as long as I got Jesus, we're good. I don't need to, I don't need to worry about how this applies in, in, in my interaction with my wife or how this applies and how much time I watch TV. Or, or I don't really need to apply God's word to what I cook for my family. Or I don't really need to apply it to how I spend my time. Or, you know, those things are just kind of, you know, it's, it's freedom. It's Christian freedom, right? It's all grace. I can do whatever I want in those categories. But Jesus is Lord over every nook and cranny of every boundary issue as well. Every moment of every day, every thought, every emotion, every action, every facial expression, every strike of your hand is under the lordship of Jesus. You see, all the law all the self-revelation of God, the whole Bible matters to God's people. Joshua tells these two and a half tribes that that's what matters. The reality is, someone else used this metaphor as well in this concept, said if we build a wall just out of the important things, the evil one will just go around the wall. But if we build a wall out of the whole truth of God's word, then Satan cannot work his way around that wall. That wall is big enough, strong enough, tall enough. It means all of God's commands matter. Again, it's easy in wartime. You're, you're pressed. You're like, I got to know the truth. I got to figure out what's real. I got to know reality. I know what, need to know what the Lord has said. And you seek it and you go after it hard. And then you get relaxed and peacetime is here. That's not the time to stop. But how do we know all of God's commands? I, we have to be careful that we don't just look at the things that seem interesting to us. I know some of us do our Bible studies that way. We just kind of study what's interesting to us. Or by look up the stuff that's most pressing. Certainly there are seasons to do that. But we should push ourselves to learn all that God has said. And applying it to every part of life. This is why things like confessional statements are important. Things like the Westminster Catechism or the London Baptist Confession or our systematic theological courses here at Refuge. You should take those things. Why? Because they're going to make you think about things that you probably wouldn't think about otherwise. In peacetime, we should enjoy the spoils of pursuing the Lord through all of his words, all of them. 
In wartime, again, you had something pushing you to know God and his word and actually do something with it. Now you should do the same thing without war. That's Joshua's point to the two and a half tribes going back to the, their piece of real estate across the water. They're saying, look, you you've fought hard for this. You've been here seven years. Don't stop. We should be taking our doctrine, what we believe, our bodies of truth, and working it into the very edges of life to the furthest points of application. But our tendency is to relax. Listen, when you see God's word as like, I need this to survive, then you will seek to know it, and you will seek to apply it with every ounce of energy you have and to every last space of your life that you have. But when it's peacetime, it's easy to say, you know what, let's just erect another altar over here. It's not that big of a deal. Listen, the rest, you should rest by believing and doing what the Lord has said. All of it. All of it. This passage is all about how to stay in the land during peacetime and not lose it. The last thing before we move on to the second main point is that unity, which is this is an important theme in this passage between these two tribes, kind of a, uh, in my estimation, a sub-theme. Unity can only be had with those who believe rightly. That's, that's part of the point here. The, the West is coming to the East saying, look, if you don't believe rightly, we can't be unified together. We can't do this together. Matter of fact, so much so that we're going to make war on you. We want to be that distinct from you. We don't want to have, we want to have that little part of you. Because we don't want the same consequences. We want the glory to go to God, not to some other God via your altar. They say in verse 16, thus says the whole congregation, Lord, what is the breach of faith that you've committed in your rebellion? The tribe begins here because if Jesus is Lord is not the framework for their conversation, for the conversation they're about to have, that's why it begins with the Lord, then no real fruitful conversation can be had. Why? Because if Jesus is not Lord, then your goals, your emotions, your communication will all be tilted toward whatever your Lord is. Let me read to you this quote. This lordship of Jesus he's referring to, that is the only source of unity for the contemporary Christian church under the lordship of Jesus Christ. True unity exists not through church councils or synods, not through resolutions or political bargaining, but in the simplest and most basic creed that is the heart of the gospel, namely that Jesus is Lord, 1 Corinthians 12.3. That is the incontrovertible proof of the Holy Spirit's work. No other confession can unite sinners than that which is expressed by bowing to Christ's lordship in every area of our life and experience. It is not even in Christ as Savior that the deepest unity is found, but when the Savior is exalted and worshiped as Lord. 
Indeed, it is only because he is the Lord that he can prove himself to be the Savior. He indeed is both, one of higher importance. You see, the, re- the, re- the West rather is ready to make war with those, even the ones they fought alongside, who appeared to not be under the lordship of Jesus. The lordship at this point of Yahweh. It is false for us to believe that unity can be had through finding the common minimum beliefs to be shared by all. What we need is a robust, thick, theological understanding and application to all of life. And that's what Joshua is pushing them toward as they move back. So how do we keep peace? How do we keep in peacetime what we gained in wartime? I can tell you one of the things that your elders are committed to, uh, to quote a statement from another church, funny enough, named Refuge as well. Your elders, like their elders, are committed to preach, teach, counsel, and lead applicationally. We want you to know how to obey all that Christ commands in his words at Refuge. Expect to have the scriptures applied to every part of what it means to be human, your emotional, mental, spiritual, social, political, relational, and physical self. Till the word of God is applied into every nook and cranny that we see our, all of our lives submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. We know all of God's words. Be careful to keep them. If we want to keep in peacetime what we gained in wartime, we should believe all of God's words and help others do the same. Next, we should love and obey and worship the only true God and help others do the same should love and obey the only true God and help others do the same. This is part of the point of the West pursuing the tribes from the East. Back to the story. Continuing the conversation between the West and the East. They say to the West, or to the East rather, in Joshua 22 verse 18, second part, only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. They are saying, listen, do not miss this. The West is saying to the East that you must worship the Lord in this way, and if you don't, the Lord will destroy us. Indeed, we believe this so strongly that we're going to wage war on you if you do. Now, why are they responding as such? I mean, that seems like pretty intense. You just had war, like you just went to war for seven years with these guys, and you're like, hang on a second. If you do that, we're going to make war on you now. You have to reach earlier to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 3 through 4, the Lord's commands as they take over land. He says this, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their eshram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. What they're saying to the tribes of the east, they're saying you must worship God this way. There is an altar at Shiloh, and it looks this way, this place, this way, only acceptable option. If you won't do it that way, it's war. Our response, 
I think if we're not, if we're, for some of us are tempted greatly here, we say, well, wow, that sounds, that sounds quite legalistic and harsh. I'm glad that's the Old Testament, right? I'm afraid I, I, we should learn to read our Bibles a little bit better. The scriptures are telling us that there is one way to worship God, and that's it. And that is no different today. Remember Jesus? These ones are in red, if you have a red letter Bible. John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making the same declaration. There is one altar upon which you can worship the Lord. Now, our problem, though I think in part is because we don't understand what worship is. So they're saying you have to worship the Lord this way. I think we fail sometimes to understand what worship is. We think it's a song, a music style, or a two-hour block of time on Sunday. But worship, though, is more accurately this, love for and obedience to whatever the Lord has said. Now, and we all worship. We all worship. As, as Rusty has said in the past, Pastor Russ, uh, we all shoot darts of worship. It's just a matter of where we are darts, arrows. He said arrows. Uh, I don't want to, you know, sissify it and make it darts. Um, arrows. You shoot arrows. Uh, it's just where is it aimed at? Where's your bow aimed at? But worship is love for and obedience ultimately to whatever our Lord is. That's worship. Some of you worship, for example, being accepted by another human. You love feeling accepted, and so you're obedient to that person. You're obedient to the thoughts and the whims of that person. You love and obey that person. Some of us are worship our kids, being liked by our kids. You love that feeling of being liked by them, and so you're obedient. You love and obey your kids. You see, in wartime, it's really easy to see if your worship is on the wrong thing, or it's easy to see what it's aimed at. In peacetime, it's harder to see this. The negative effects of wrong worship during peacetime usually have a delayed negative effect. It's going to cost more the next day or three months later. As we're in war, if your allegiance is wrong in war, you find out real quick why. Because you take a bullet, or because you lose the battle for the day. But in peacetime, the consequences are usually delayed. Tomorrow, four weeks later, four years, or four decades. Let's first, as we move forward, talk about how worship is love and obedience. To do that first, though, I think we need to understand that his law is love, and to obey his law is to love him. I would encourage you to write that down. His law, meaning God's law, is love, and to obey God's law is to love him. His law is love, and to obey his law is to love him. Joshua told the West, again, at the beginning, this phrase. Let's, let's reread this, this, what seems like a jumble of words. Verse 
5, second part, to love the Lord your God. So he's encouraging the two and a half tribes going back to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Wow, Joshua, that seems like a lot. It is a lot. That is the expectations. The expectations are no less today. But somewhere down the line, we started believing that the law equals legalism. And therefore, anyone zealous about the law is a legalist. Anyone who told me to obey some standards is a legalist. And anyone who challenges my freedom is a legalist. But the reality is this. Listen, the reality for all of us is this. We all live by some set of laws. There is no one who lives by grace in the sense that they're not bound to some set of laws. Everyone lives by a set of laws. The reality is it's either God's law or your laws. It's either your laws or God's laws. Those are the only two options. And here's the deal. If you live by your law, you are necessarily a legalist. That law is your means of proving your righteousness. You cannot live by your law and not be a legalist. Why? Because you can't rightly live in response to God's love by loving and obeying your laws. It doesn't work that way. God doesn't give grace and power for you to live rightly according to your laws. So the only other option is for you to be a legalist. Just proving to yourself and others by your laws. Now, some of us write laws that are really easy. Some of us write laws that are crushing. Nevertheless, our laws. And we don't have the grace of God to keep those. Why? Because those are not God's law. You're not responding to his love for you by loving and keeping your laws. It doesn't work that way. Let's move on. The only right option is to view the law as love. And live under it out of love, okay? To view the law as loving and to live according to it out of love. That's the key. That's the distinction between like self-righteous legalism, where I just obey the law because I got to earn my way into heaven or earn my way with the Lord. I got to prove this to myself so I can feel good about myself. That's legalism. On the other response, we see Jesus has kept the law. Now I, as a child of God, because God's loved me so much, let me go live according to his law. I'm getting ahead of myself. We tend to view the law as adversarial to love. We even do this in our relationships. Right, this, is our, this is our culture right now. If you give me a law or a standard, you must not be loving. Why? Because you must let me do what I want to do. That's what's most loving. I mean, that's, that's what our culture is. That's just made its way into the church. Love will just let me be who I want to be. Love will just let them erect an altar, you know, love is love. But God's law intimately, as we talked about in the past few weeks, intimately proceeds from his character. It's a re revelation of what he cares most about and what he loves and what he thinks is good or knows is good, I should say, both for his glory and for our good. God's revealed will and his law, his self, is the most loving place for us to be, most loving for us to reside so if the law is this intimate revelation of the character of God, 1 John 4, 8 says this, anyone who does not 
Love does not know God because God is love. So if God is love and his law proceeds from his character, then his law is loving. Now Joshua says, back to this that we already read, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. What a jumble of words. He says, love him, walk in his ways and keep his commandments. Cling to him, serve him. I think what we've done in our day is worship has been wrongly separated into two potential separate realities as if love can be a reality without obedience and obedience, true obedience, can be a reality without love. It's a false dichotomy, would be the fancy term for it. Love for God, obedience to God. And when you separate these things, when you separate those two and they can exist on their own, as if you could love God without obeying him or you can truly obey him without loving him. If you can separate those two realities as though one can be present and the other one not, then you can get statements like, you keep talking about obedience. That's not very loving. Or I love Jesus, but my obedience sure isn't looking very good. You can get ridiculous statements, I should say, like those two. Logically, these two concepts, love for God and obedience to God, can be talked about separately, absolutely. But physically, in reality, they are one unit, like a penny. You have Abe's head on one side and the memorial on the back. Yes, you can talk about each side of the penny individually. But if you don't have both sides of that penny, you don't have a penny. To love God is to be obedient to God. Listen, legalism is a requirement to keep standards in order to earn righteousness. It might be to prove yourself to God, prove yourself to others, prove your righteousness to yourself. It just depends on your proclivities. It can look different. Legalism is not loving God and keeping all of his standards in response. You know what that's called? That's called Christianity. Legalism is not Loving God, keeping all of his standards in response, and helping others do the same. Do you know what that's called? That's called Christianity. God's law is an expression of his love for his people. And our keeping it rightly should be because we love him. Because he first loved us. Now sure, you and I can do things that look like keeping the law, and we can do that out of self-righteousness, just trying to prove ourselves. But again, that's not rightful obedience to God's law. That's just us trying to earn our righteousness. Instead, let me give you the positive side of this conversation. There is one way to worship God, both in peacetime and in wartime, and that is simply this, a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice sacrifice. Now think about this. When you go to war, isn't it easier to see the idea of sacrifice? Like you're living in war, but you know you could die at any moment. You're fighting for the truth in a situation with a friend, and you know you could be crucified by them at any moment. They could cancel you. 
you know, as if that's the worst thing in the world. Uh, like the idea of seeing a living, like living, it's like right, it's right on your fingertips. Like you can almost taste the sacrifice, the fact that you could die for that cause. But in peacetime, it's much harder to see. Romans 12.1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by what? The mercies, plural, of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Does he stop there? So present your bodies as someone who sings songs to someone in a happy with a happy heart, you know. No, what's he say? A living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God, which is your what? Spiritual worship. That's your spiritual worship. Living sacrifice that looks like someone living in a way that is holy and acceptable to God in response to the mercies of God. Do you see it? The mercies of God. I live this way. I want to keep this law. I want to live in obedience to God because of his mercies. Because of his mercy. What's the mercies he's speaking of? The mercy that Jesus would pay the price for my failings in keeping the law. According to that mercy, I want to live in obedience to him. What's he saying? He's saying worship is recognizing God's great mercy and living obediently in response. Loving God, obeying God, that is true spiritual worship. Two sides, same coin. Those realities cannot exist separate. They go together. That's why, that's why Joshua is saying this, this phrase. That's why he says, love the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Keep his command. Cling to him. Serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. What's he saying? Every nook and cranny of your life. That it all is loving him, and that will look like it all being in obedience to him. Every last drop, the furthest reaches of your soul under the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now back to the story. How does the east respond? How does the east respond? They say this. No, 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 no. It's not an altar. You know, it just looks like one, and it's a very imposing one, which is kind of funny and strikes me as, as a little funny, but maybe not you. Uh, they say, it's a memorial. It's a memorial. It's a reminder. And in fact, they go on so far to say, indeed, if our intentions were to do something evil and only God ultimately knows our intentions. But if we did intend to do something evil, like erect a very huge altar, just like the altar back there, that looks like we're going to offer sacrifices, if we were intending to do that, then let God judge us and strike us down. What are they saying? They're saying we trust his judgment and we believe his commands. Now, clearly from what we see in the resolution of this passage is that this is the reality. This is true, that they were not building a place to worship God. They were not seeking to disobey God's commands. We'll talk about what was their plan here in just a few moments. But notice their posture. Indeed, God knows our hearts, and if we have done, sought to do anything evil, may he strike us down. If you want to keep in peacetime, 
what you gain during war, you should have the same posture. Indeed, Lord, if any of my intentions were evil, may you strike us down. As you approach, listen, church, as you approach someone who looks like, a couple side notes here, if you're, if you, as you approach someone that looks like they're living in potential sinfulness, notice the way the West, I think there's a good model for us here. They go and they ask questions. But they also don't beat around the bush. Look, are you intending to sin with your life right now? Are you intending, is this your purpose? Is this your plan? Second, you should look for this posture in that person. Indeed, if we intended something evil, may God strike us down. It's a posture that says, no, 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 no. We want to know what God has said and we want to obey him only. The last thing is I want you to see is this, that in peacetime, just as the East is doing here, and I think this is a, a righteous thing. It's later proclaimed as righteous in the story. This is a good thing. And their report back to the West, as the West goes back, they report that this is a good thing. And that is... They lay the tracks for future faithfulness. This is peacetime. They decide to build something that will help ensure faithfulness in the future. So when I say, husbands, build your households. It's not time to relax. Build your households. If it's peacetime, lay the tracks for future faithfulness. If it's wartime, then keep fighting the war. But if it's peacetime, lay the tracks for future faithfulness. This was an admirable thing among the eastern tribes. They were building this memorial to remind the future generations that both sides of the river were going to worship and committed to worshiping the only true and living God. In part, what were they doing? They were telling the future selves and particularly their future children what was important. And what was important was knowing all of God's words and loving obey, and obeying him rightly. That this is what's important to us. Which brings us back to the beginning. Husbands, what are you teaching your wives to believe is important? With your words, with your actions? Parents, what are you teaching your kids to believe is important? What do you want them to believe is important? What are you impressing upon them to hold on to tightly and not forget? What, to use the words here, what memorials are you building for your children? Do you really want your children to believe that sports is more important than the worship of the living God? Or do we really want them to believe, listen parents, do you really want your children to believe that reading the Bible once a week will keep them Worshiping the Lord. Like you're building memorials with every action or inaction that you do. Every moment you spend is another block laid on whatever memorial you have set your hand to. Do you really want them to believe 
that what the news says or YouTube says or Facebook says is more important than what the Word of God says? Are you building that memorial? Are they going to look back on the memorial of your parenting and say, Mom and Dad believed more, were moved more, talked more about the things that the world said than the things that God has said? Build the right memorials. Build the right ones. You know, it's so easy to lose in peacetime what you gained in war, right? The scars begin to fade. The lethargy takes over, laziness and ease. Lull us to sleep like a gentle breeze on a mild summer morning. The things that once drove you to dependence on God and knowing him and seeking to abide in God's presence are now much lighter. The heat, the temperature, the pressure is much lower. And all of a sudden, the ground once gained is now ground lost. The reality is this, I think we learn in this passage, is that the only way God's people don't lose what was gained in the presence of God ultimately, or what was gained in war ultimately is the presence of God. That is the ultimately the way we keep in peacetime what we, uh, we gained in war is the presence of Almighty God. Back to the story. Now the East realizes there is no, I'm sorry, the West realizes there is no need for war, but actually a cause for celebration. A cause to, to give a good report. And they say in verse 31, And Phinehas, the, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Do you see it? What, God, what, what does God's presence do among God's people, it changes them. It makes them like himself. Do you see that? Today we know that the Lord is in our midst. Why? Because you've walked in obedience, that God's presence and our walk of obedience, that these things go together. We've not made this breach of faith against the Lord, they say, and we've been delivered from the judgments of, of Israel. Why? Because God was in their presence. What does God do? God shields them from his judgment by his presence, bringing about right action and faith in their lives. Isn't that precisely what happens at the cross? Isn't that exactly the mercies that Paul is speaking of in Romans 12. Doesn't God and his presence come to live among his people? And doesn't God and his presence come and die on a cross and take the judgment due for our failure to keep the faith, for our failure to walk in obedience? And doesn't God's people then stand around and say something like, today, we know the Lord is in our midst because Jesus has committed no breach of faith against the Lord. And Jesus alone has delivered us from God's 
judgment. Isn't that what God's people stand and say? Listen, it's, it's real easy to say that right at the end of warfare, right? Right at the end of that moment, you're hard mourning, and you, man, I've been delivered by the blood of Jesus for that sin that I've just committed this morning. Now let me live in faith, and as the day goes on, but what if an hour later you would remind yourself by God's grace something like, I know the Lord is in my midst because Jesus has committed no breach of faith against the Lord. And he has delivered me from God's judgment. And what if two hours later you could remind yourself of the same thing? And what if the next day you reminded yourself of the same thing? And then in peacetime, you didn't slowly forget the reality that the Lord is in your midst because Jesus has committed no breach of faith against the Lord and has delivered me from God's judgment. What if we live that way as a church? In peacetime, what if we said as a church... Together, today we know the Lord is in our midst because Jesus has committed no breach of faith against the Lord and has delivered us from God's judgment. And then don't God's people respond with being strong and courageous, even during peacetime, to worship this merciful God every day. We, in peacetime, want to know all of God's words. If we believe in his mercies, we will want to know all of his words. You won't have to be begged to get into the Bible and read it. If you see his mercies, you will want to love and obey this God that first loved you and proved it by his son shielding you from God's judgment. And we would want others to do the same, would we not? We would be like the West that goes to the East and says, hey, Don't forget, we worship God this way, and only this way. And then wouldn't God's people in response then to war enjoy the spoils of war and help others do the same in peacetime? Listen, church, this is how we keep in peacetime what was gained during war. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your strong words of encouragement and exhortation to the two and a half tribes that would go back to their side of the river to remind them to love the Lord your God and keep his commandments. These things necessarily go together. Father, for when we, when we say, I, I love you, but my obedience is not lined up, in my disobedience, I was lump, loving something else. And Father, what might lead that heart to repentance, or would lead that heart to repentance, is faith in the mercies of God. May we be like the West, who says, we're not going to put up with worship of God in any other way. May we also be like the people of the West who build right memorials that remind us to live according to the mercy of God. For the very point of an altar 
was God's display of mercy through the sacrificing of the, and the blood of a, an atonement to die in our place. What mercy that is, both for those in Joshua's day and for us who look not to the blood sacrificed on an altar built for lambs and birds, but an altar that was built in the core of our souls, meant to be washed by the blood of the eternal Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we, by your grace, be a people that keeps in peacetime what we gain often through the difficulties and the trials of war. And ask all these things for the name, for your glory, and in the name of your son, Jesus, for our good. Amen.